Psalm 17. I'm going to read this psalm to you in its entirety. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to remind you as we approach the text that this is the holy and inspired word of God. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the words of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear. As a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come now to your holy and inspired word, acknowledging that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Indeed, O Lord, your word pierces to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, because it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So search us and know us, we pray. May we be laid bare before you, drawn near to us in your word, and then show to us your manifold glories, that we might know and love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I think if I took a poll, I doubt that many of you would raise your hand and say, that's my life verse. Right? These are words of Jesus that when we hear them, when we come to them, we struggle with them, don't we? Because what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, one of the blessings that you have as a child of God, because you're united to me by grace through faith, one of those blessings is that from time to time in your life, you are going to be lied about. You're going to be reviled. You're going to be persecuted for all kinds of evil falsely on account of my name. Jesus puts it negatively elsewhere in the Gospels when he says what? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we crave that, don't we? We want to be spoken well of by all people. And yet what Jesus promises here is, if you're united to me, you will be reviled. You will be persecuted. You will have evil spoken about you falsely on my account. That's the way it's always been ever since the fall. All the prophets, Jesus says, the same thing happened to them. It's happened to me, and now it is going to happen to you as well. And what's interesting is as we come to Psalm 17 this morning, we find one of the prophets that Jesus talks about in that exact situation. You know, you know David's called a prophet, right? Peter calls him that in the Sermon on the Mountain, Acts chapter 2. David is a prophet. And what's his experience here? He's being persecuted. He's being slandered. He's being reviled falsely by his enemies. And he's passionate about it. He's upset about it. And so how does he respond in that situation? Well, the answer is quite easy because it's the answer that every psalm gives us. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we're to cry out to the Lord. We're to pray to him. We're to appeal to the judge of all mankind who alone judges justly. But here's the question I want to ask even further. What exactly does that look like? What exactly does it look like as David appeals here to God as the judge of all mankind, asking him to judge rightly between David and his enemies? What exactly does that look like? Well, we're going to see that in this text this morning. And we're going to see that the text naturally revolves around three appeals that David makes. And each one of these appeals, I want you to be aware of, are concerning or are based on the character of one of the three parties involved in this conflict with David. So what we'll see then is that in the first appeal, it concerns David's innocence. We'll see that in verses 1 through 5. In the second appeal, what we're going to see is that it concerns the guilt of David's enemies. We'll see that in verses 6 through 12. And then lastly, in the third appeal, what we'll see is that it concerns God's justice. It concerns the justice of God. And as if that weren't a complex enough outline, I'm going to add a little bit more to it. There's three points, and then each point has three points. Because you know I like the number three. And here's what I want us to see. I want us to look at this psalm and each one of these appeals from three different perspectives. I want us to first hear this psalm as it's voiced in the mouth of David. 
Secondly, I want us to see how it is mouthed or voiced in the mouth of Jesus in his life and ministry. And then lastly, I want us to see how these appeals can be voiced by us as well as God's people today. It may sound a little complex, but I think it's going to be helpful as we walk through the text. So let's look first then at the first appeal concerning David's innocence. Look at the superscript with me. A prayer of David. That is in the original Hebrew. And this is the first of the Psalms that we've come to so far that is specifically entitled a prayer. Now you know as well as I do, all the other Psalms are prayers as well. But this one specifically is given that title. And it's not just any old prayer. It's specifically a prayer of David. Now, we're not given any more information than that. We're not given the historical setting in which David sang and prayed this prayer and then penned it for all posterity. But most commentators I read throughout history, their best guess is that David is either running as an outlaw from Saul earlier on in David's life, or he's running away from his own son, Absalom, later on in his life. And that seems to make a lot of sense with the text. Ultimately, the text doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to harp on that too much. But I think it's helpful to have that bit of, of potential historical background there. And what do we find David doing right out of the gate? He's appealing to the Lord concerning his innocence. Here's what he says. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. So what's going on? David's being attacked by his enemies. They're making accusations. And so David says, you know what? This isn't going to be settled in a human court of law, so I'm going to go to the judge of all mankind, Yahweh, the Lord. That's literally what that's translated in, uh, in English, that Lord there that's in all caps. He's appealing to his covenant God, saying, I have a just cause, and since you're a just God, I'm going to appeal to you and bring this before you. David's confident in his position. And yet you notice, David doesn't just have well-reasoned appeals. We're going to see that. He's also very passionate. You notice at the beginning of, of most of these three appeals, there's exclamation points. Now, those aren't in the original text. There's not punctuation in the original Hebrew. But I think the translators are getting to the heart of this, this urgency and this passion that David has as he's pleading his case before God. There's no dispassionate position on David's part here. He's emotionally charged because he's being wrongly accused. And this is unjust. And so he appeals to the Lord and says, Attend to my cry, my emotional well-reasoned appeal to you. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit, he says in the second half of verse 1. David's saying, Lord, you can trust my accounting and that my cause is just because concerning this specific accusation, my lips are free from deceit. Now, David's not saying, it's important that we understand this, David's not saying that his lips are free from deceit in every area of his life. David's not claiming sinlessness in the entirety of his life here. He could say along with the prophet Isaiah, Woe to me, for am I a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Instead, what he's saying is, Lord, concerning this specific accusation, my lips are free from deceit. I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm giving you an accurate accounting of what has happened, what the truth is concerning the lies that my enemies are bringing against me. He goes on to say in verse 2, from your presence, 
Let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. Again, David says, I'm going to appeal to the greatest court I can, the courtroom of Almighty God Himself, who is the just judge of all mankind. And I want vindication from you, O Lord. What is vindication? Vindication is when you're tried for a crime and you're shown to be innocent. And David says, Lord, I don't care if anybody else gets it. Well, he does, actually. But ultimately, I care that it resounds forth from your courtroom. And so I'm appealing to you. I want vindication from your gavel, O Lord, not guilty but righteous in this regard. And so turn your eyes upon me, the innocent, as I have this just cause that I am going to bring before you. So David's appealing to, the, to his innocence here before the Lord. And he says, Lord, you already know that I'm innocent. How do you know that? Look at verse 3. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. You see, David knows that God is omniscient. That God is all-knowing. He knows everything. And He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So nothing escapes the knowledge and the all-seeing eye of God. And so David says, God, you've tried me concerning this accusation. You've put me over the fire as it will. And as you've looked at me and you've tested my metal, you've seen there's no impurities concerning this specific accusation. You've tried my heart. More than that, you visited me by the night. When do evil deeds take place mostly? At night, at least in scriptures they do. Under the cover of darkness where nobody can see. And when are we most often tempted to let our minds drift to illicit, inappropriate, sinful places? It's as we're winding down at the end of the day and you're, you're, you're falling asleep and your mind's just going to these weird places sometimes, right? And David says, Lord, you've come and you've visited me in that state and you've seen even there, I'm innocent. I'm not guilty of this accusation that they're, they're bringing against me. You found nothing. And David says more than that, part of the reason why, Lord, that's happened is because look at the end of verse 3. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. What a great resolve for David to make in the midst of these accusations and persecutions his enemies are heaping upon him. I don't know about you, but when someone's lying about me or slandering me, either to my face or behind my back, I am tempted so quickly to sin with my mouth, to sin with my words, to, to return evil for evil, by abusing the gift of speech that God has given me. And what does David say here? He says, I've purposed that in all of this, I'm not going to transgress with my mouth. I'm innocent in regards to these charges. I'm not like them. They're guilty, but I'm innocent. Now, how has David been able to do this? How has David been able to, to plead innocence and actually be innocent? What does he say in verse 4? With regard to the works of man... Now catch this, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Don't forget, David's aware of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in these ways, but instead he meditates on the law of God. He delights in it, and he meditates on it day and night. And what David understands is, is that as he meditates and delights on God's word, as he's revealed it to him graciously in a covenant of grace, the Holy Spirit uses that word. God uses that word. Yahweh uses that word to sanctify and purify David. 
That's why he's given it to him as a, a means of grace. It's what David says in Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. David says, that's what I've been doing. Or what about in verse 11 of Psalm 119? I have stored up your word in my heart. Why, David? Why have you stored up the Lord's word in your heart that I might not sin against you? He's walking the path, not perfectly, but consistently of the Psalm 1 man by God's grace. It's the same thing that Jesus talks about in John 17. When he prays to the Father, what does he say? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And David knew this. Lord, you've used your word to sanctify me and purify me, to conform my character to your perfect and holy character from one degree of glory to the next. Because what is the word of God? What is the law of God? But a revelation of his perfect and holy and righteous character. And David says, your word is transforming me as the Holy Spirit does that in me. And you can see the humility of David here in the next verse. David's not saying, I'm doing this in my own strength. David knows if I was left to my own devices, I would stray from the path that you have laid out for me. I would walk in the ways of the violent as he talks about earlier. But what does he say here in verse 5? My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now, I read numerous commentators uh, throughout the ages and, and recently and different translations, and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that so many other commentators and translations translate this as a request rather than just a statement. In the ESV here, the translation I just read it to you from, it's read as just a statement. But in the King James Version, for example, here's how it translates. Hold up my goings in thy paths that my footsteps slip not. You see, it's a prayer. It's a request. David's saying, it's not just enough that I, I know your word that you've graciously given to me, but Lord, you must also uphold me and empower me and keep my footsteps so that I continue to walk in accord with your word. And so how does David do? He, he prays that the Lord would. He says, only you can do that, Lord. It's this beautiful picture, by the way, of in the Hebrew language of a wagon that's cut a, a, a path. It's blazed a trail. And now David's saying, I'm walking in the wagon wheel path that's been left behind as I walk in accord with your word. And Lord, keep me on that path. Because if you leave me, I will stray. I will return evil to evil to my enemies. I will want to sin with my speech. I will want to heap violence upon them. David was not a man unfamiliar with violence, so we can imagine the temptation that that was for him. But he's avoided all of these things. He's innocent. Again, not perfectly, but he's innocent in regards to this specific accusation that's being brought against him. It's not a hard leap from what David is saying here to how this psalm would find voice in the mouth of Jesus, is it? Because Jesus wasn't just innocent in regards to specific charges that were brought against him in his life, which were many, right? The religious leaders say, he's a drunkard. He hangs out with sinners, the implication being he himself is a sinner. And then finally, the accusation that he was a blasphemer which, and an insurrectionist, which eventually led to his crucifixion. But Jesus was innocent. And Jesus wasn't just innocent of some specific accusation. He was innocent perfectly and entirely. You remember what Pilate said about him 
In Luke 23, verse 4, Jesus was brought before Pilate, tried, and what does Pilate say? I find no guilt in this man. He's innocent. What you're charging him with, it it doesn't make any sense. I find no guilt in him. What does Peter say about Jesus? He says he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Doesn't that sound just like Psalm 17? No deceit on my lips, Lord. Jesus had zero deceit in his mouth. No duplicity. He always spoke the truth. Jesus says of himself in John 8, 29, that in all of his life, he always was doing the things that please his Father. So how did Jesus respond when he was wrongly accused? He prayed. What happens in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knows what's coming? His trial, his execution, he's pleading before the Father. The angels come and they, they minister to him. But Jesus didn't just do that in Gethsemane. He didn't just do that at the cross. We see that he cried to the Father as well in prayer on the cross. But Hebrews 5, 7, he did that his entire life. Listen to Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications like David did. With loud cries and tears, there was no removed passion on Jesus' part. He was emotionally charged when he brought these to his heavenly Father. With loud cries and tears, just like David, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And yet, even though Jesus was innocent of the charges specifically that were brought against him, he was crucified, wasn't he? Why is that? Why was the innocent one killed in place of the guilty and treated as if he himself were guilty? Well, first of all, let me dispel any myth in your mind that Jesus was somehow a victim. You should not be moved to sadness or grief when you think about the cross because you think, how could they do this to Jesus? He's such a terrible victim. Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not a victim. John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. And I'm going to do it because that is what my father has told me to do. So why is the innocent treated as the guilty, brothers and sisters, for your sin and for my sin? There's no way we could stand in the presence of a holy God and claim innocence in all of our lives. David himself knew that. He's pleading his innocence in regard to this specific accusation. But he himself had to resort to the righteousness and the death of the coming Messiah who would lay down his life for David and who laid down his life, brothers and sisters, for you and me. That's what God's justice demanded. The penalty of the law for breaking it is death. And Jesus said, I'm laying down my life for my sheep. That's what they deserve, but I'm taking it upon myself. And so he dies. And he's treated as he is guilty, even though he is innocent. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. So now, how does this psalm find voice in our mouths today as as believers? Brothers and sisters, we should cry out to God when we are wrongly accused. We should appeal to him. Does it shock you? Shocking to you that David makes this well-reasoned appeal? Do you do that in your prayers when you're wrongly accused? Lord, I'm innocent. You know I'm innocent. Let me tell you why I'm innocent. Do you appeal to him or do you just brood? Go inward and think about all the ways you'd love to just crush your enemies. Man, if I had been sharper, I would have said this to him. And so instead you say it to your friends or you think it in your heart. No, our great privilege 
is, especially when we're innocent in these sorts of situations, what a joy it is. I don't know if you've experienced this, but to have slander be thrown around about you and be able to stand before God and say, Lord, I know that I'm innocent in regards to this. I don't like that my enemies are slandering me and, and, and spreading falsehoods, but the peace, even in the midst of the emotion, that I know that you know that I'm innocent of this. Do we care, brothers and sisters, more about what God has said and what God knows in his judgment than what everybody else around us thinks when they're mistaken? Do we? We should. That's our privilege. It's our great joy. Now, that's your privilege if you're innocent. What if you're guilty of the charge that someone's bringing against you? That's not what the psalm is talking about, but let me briefly give you that. Repent. Seek to make restitution to the person that you've offended. Be patient with them as they absorb the offense and don't try to push them for trust more quickly than they're willing to give it. That's part of the consequence of, of what you have done against them when you sin. But then where do you go? Where do you fly? You fly to 1 John 2.1 and you read, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That sin was paid for. God doesn't hold it against you. And Jesus is your righteousness. So appeal to him and walk through whatever consequences you have to walk through as a result of that sin. So we've looked at the first appeal that concerns David's innocence. Next, let's look at the second appeal concerning the guilt of David's enemies. Look at verse 6 with me. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my word. So again, you can very clearly see why we're calling this the second appeal. He finishes the part about his innocence, and now he says, I'm going to call upon you. I call upon you to to hear me. And then David goes into some wonderful language that should evoke the historical period of time in which God frees his people from exile in Egypt. This is Exodus-type language here in verse 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Steadfast love there is that Hebrew word hesed. God's covenant-keeping, faithful love towards His people that they didn't earn, that they can't lose. It's surely an act of God's grace that He's placed it upon them. And David says, Lord, wondrously show that. Wondrously show that like how? Like back in the time of the Exodus. You remember that the Israelites are in captivity to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are literally building the glory of their empire upon the slavish backs of the Israelites. They're just cruel. They they oppose them. They're, they're, They're enemies of God and the enemies of his people. And so the people cry out to God. And God hears them and draws near and sends redemption in Moses and Aaron and does these incredible plagues, signs and wonders to show the Israelites, the Egyptians, and all the world that the God of the Israelites is the one true God who is greater than all other gods. And David says, I'm appealing to you like that. I'm now in your covenant, O God, and I am the covenant representative as your king over your people, and we're being oppressed We're being attacked by our enemies. They're slandering us. So wondrously show your steadfast love again now as you did back then. I I find refuge in you. Bear your right arm, O Lord. Your right hand. What does that mean? When Most people are right-handed. Well, if you wielded a sword or a spear, it was with your right hand. You'd cut down your enemy. 
David's saying, Lord, free us from our adversaries by your right hand. So why is David um, appealing to the Lord here in in his covenant? Because he needs deliverance from his guilty enemies. And so he uses more language then in verse 8. Oh, you know, there's one more thing I wanted to point out. You see in verse 7 that word show there? Do you have a footnote that says there's another way you can translate that? Distinguish me by? David's saying, wondrously distinguish me by your steadfast love. Divide my enemies and me, those who are covenant keepers and those who are covenant breakers, those who are in a covenant of grace with you and those who are in a covenant of works with you by your steadfast love. David knows that's the only thing that distinguishes me from my enemies. I would be just like them if it weren't for the covenant-keeping love of God that he's placed upon me. David then appeals to a passage of Scripture that we read this morning in verse 8, Deuteronomy 32. That's why I had Russ read that passage. David is borrowing language from Deuteronomy 32, what we call the Song of Moses, and he's appealing to the reality that in the wilderness wanderings, after the The people of Israel were delivered from their captivity in Egypt. They disobeyed God, so then they wandered in the wilderness. In that state, in the Song of Moses, Moses says, God, you looked at Israel, and you said, you're the apple of my eye, and I will hide you under the shadow of your wings. These are two beautiful word pictures here that show the tender, covenant-keeping love of God. Let me just briefly explain this to you. Do you know what the apple of one's eye is? I think when I was growing up, I thought it was the best apple in the bowl. And so that's the apple of your eye. You know, look at that. That's, that's not what it means at all. I was wildly ignorant. The apple of your eye is your pupil. And you know we have these eyelids. And if something is about to harm your eyeballs, you know you, your body does everything it can to protect you, doesn't it? Case in point, last time I went to the eye doctor, they do this test where they stick an instrument. Some of you are nodding your heads. Lots of you with glasses are nodding your heads. They stick this device against your eyeball, not your eyelid, your eyeball. And it tests the pressure to see if it's too great or too small and if there's something wrong. Well, being the macho man that I am, I told them, hey, I don't need that numbing stuff that you're going to put in my eye. I'm a big boy. Just stick that sucker on there and let's get this over with. Well, they stuck that on there and I was blinking like crazy. I, I, I couldn't do it. Why? I instinctively care about my eyesight. I care about my eyeballs. And so I'm caring, I'm keeping the apple of my eye. Think about that imagery. What the Lord has said to Israel is, you're like my eyeball. You know how you value your eyesight? I value you that way. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to protect you. And so David's making this appeal. He's saying, Lord, you've made this promise to your people in the covenant. So keep it. I'm a part of that. Israel is a part of that. Protect us from our enemies. Second word picture. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Let me paint a picture for you. You've got a mother hen, chicken. She's out in an open area with her chicks. The chicks are a little bit further away. Mom's gathering food, weeds, worms, insects for the chicks to eat. And as she's doing that and the chicks are off exploring the world, all of a sudden she looks up in a tree and sees a bird of prey. Falcon, eagle, hawk, whatever. And she realizes, oh no, we're in danger. So what does she do? She makes that screech that mother hens make. The chicks hear it, recognize it, run to the mother hen. She pops her wings out and she protects them. They're safe now. So even if that 
bird of prey swoops down and digs its talons into the mother hen, she will have protected her baby. She's willing to lay down her own life for the good of her little baby chicks. This is language, by the way, that Jesus picks up, right? He's approaching Jerusalem in the Gospels, and what does he say? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, that, that, that you would let me spread my wings around you like a mother hen to her chicks, but, but, but you won't. Jesus himself knew this is a covenant promise to God's people. And so David's saying, keep that promise, Lord. Keep me like the apple of your eye. Protect us as a mother hen protects her chicks. From who? From our enemies. This is where David starts to rack up the accounting of his enemy's guilt. Look at verse 9. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Now, this is where we probably can't relate to David, right? My life, as far as I know, I've never been pursued with violence and someone trying to kill me. That was David's experience. He's like, I'm not just being attacked by my enemy's words. They've got swords and spears. They're violent men. They, they are not walking in accord with your word. Their hearts are hard. And so they've got all this guilt, all these injustices that they're committing against me. They're my deadly enemies. And Lord, there's a sense of urgency here because they're surrounding me. They've surrounded me. You need to see this. You need to understand this. David goes on to describe them in verse 10. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. Some fascinating language here that doesn't quite translate super well into English, but I read a Hebrew commentator that said you could translate the first half of verse 10, they're fat, they have closed. What in the world does that mean? Fat is not very sensitive, is it? It kind of dulls whatever you're trying to poke. And so David's saying it's like they've got a bunch of fat around their heart. They're insensitive. They don't have any pity. I'm trying to, man, look at what you're doing to me. If it is, in fact, the situation that David's on the run from either Saul or Absalom, he's had to leave everything and, and hide in, in the caves like an animal. And David's saying, they, they have no pity. They have no compassion. There's no sensitivity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They, they claim that I'm guilty of these things. Humility is saying the truth. They're arrogantly saying, I've done these things when I haven't. Proudly using their speech to tear me and your people down. And Lord, these people are your enemies because they're my enemies, right? David is God's representative on earth as for his people. And so David is saying, they're your enemies too, Lord. And they've closed their hearts to pity. Their mouths are speaking arrogantly. Verse 11, getting even more intense. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. David's saying it's like they've set their face like a flint and their eyes are just locked on us and all they want to do is cut us down. It, it bothers them that we're still walking around upright. My enemies want to cut us down. And Lord, in their hardness of heart, in their sin, in their rebellion against you and your people and your king, like Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage? Against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what these enemies are doing. David says as they harden their hearts more and more and they give themselves over to this, they're becoming more and more animalistic. He doesn't call his enemies animals, but he says they're becoming more and more animal-like. Look at verse 12. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Now we read young lion and we think, oh, like those lion cubs that you can go pet at the zoo, right? No. The young lion here is the lion in its prime. It has no contender. It has its mane. 
It's full grown. It just as soon swipe your face off with one swipe of its claw than anything else. And David's saying, these are my enemies. They are eager to tear me to shreds. They're lurking in ambush. They're hiding in the tall grass. And they're just looking at me going, I can't wait to pounce as they're surrounding me. This is David's situation. And he's crying out to the Lord saying, look at how they're guilty. Don't forget your covenant steadfast love, O Lord. And it's not hard to transfer this psalm into the mouth of Jesus, is it? This is exactly his experience. How many times did Jesus' enemies, are we told in the Gospels, try to take his life and yet they're unable because it's not yet Jesus' time? And yet they rail against him and they plot against him. They're like lions that, that, that want to destroy him. They've got no, no sensitivity or pity in their hearts. And yet what does Jesus do? Though they are They are are guilty of worse guilt than David's enemies here because who are they railing against? Jesus, God's only begotten son, David's greater son. Their guilt is worse. And yet, what does Jesus do? He cries out to his father. His covenant-keeping God, he appeals to God against his guilty enemies. And Jesus, know this, Jesus didn't do that in a bitter way. He did it in such a way that he was actually able to willingly give his life for his enemies. He didn't respond to his enemies' violence with violence in turn, did he? What does 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 through 24 say? When he, that being Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see what Jesus was doing? Brothers and sisters, he was bringing about the greater exodus. The exodus of the people of Israel, that's just a type and shadow. It actually happened, and it was a display, a wondrous display of God's steadfast love. But the greater exodus has come because one who is greater than Moses has come. And how has he delivered his people? Not from their physical enemies, but from their spiritual enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil, the wrath of God that they deserved, Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb who took away the sins of the world so that we could be reconciled to the Father. See, Jesus didn't come as a lion. We're going to see he comes as a lion the second time. First time he comes as that sacrificial lamb to pay for the sins of his people, for your sins and my sins. So what do we see then? This psalm finds its ultimate meaning and fulfillment in Jesus, in his, his coming. Now, how does it find voice, this psalm, in our mouths, in our lives? We too, brothers and sisters, hear this loud and clear, must appeal to the covenant faithfulness of God when our enemies are attacking us like this. Because you know what's going to happen? You know what your heart's going to tempt you to believe? God's abandoned you. This is proof. I can't tell you how many times I sit in in the counseling office discipling people with the word and some tragedy comes into their life and it must be for this sin. It must be for this. It's just more proof that I'm just a terrible person. That's why my enemies are attacking me. No. This very well may be proof that you are one of God's children. So plead the covenant promises. Say, Lord, show your wondrous 
covenant-keeping, steadfast love to me. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Show this tender covenant love to me. Because you're going to be tempted to doubt it, brothers and sisters. And as we walk with other people through that kind of, those kind of sufferings, may we remind them of those truths. You're a covenant child. God's a faithful covenant God. He loves you. And he will not fail you, though he may delay justice for a time. Continue to look to him. Trust him and his character. That's our great privilege to plead the covenant promises as David did and as Jesus did. Okay, so we've looked at the first appeal concerning David's innocence and the second appeal concerning the guilt of his enemies. Lastly, let's look at the third appeal. It's the shortest one, don't worry. Concerning God's justice. Look at verse 13 with me. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. So we've seen in the first two appeals, David appeals to the Lord as judge, the all-knowing judge, the just judge. The judge who is also his covenant-keeping God who loves him. And now what do we see David appealing to here? We see David appealing to God as the executioner. The warrior king. Come and execute justice. Lord, my enemies are raising a sword against me. You raise your sword against them. I'm not going to walk in their violent ways. I'm not going to rail against them with my mouth. My appeal is to you based on my innocence, their guilt, and your covenant-keeping, and your justice. So you come and you cut them down. David can say that about his enemies because, again, David's enemies are God's enemies. You understand there's two teams. You're either for God or you're against him. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. You're either a believer or you are an unbeliever. And David's able to say, Lord, they deserve your just wrath for their sin against me, for their sin against you, and for their sin against your people. So, Lord, pay attention. Raise your sword. Cut them down. And David offers some more proof that they are not men of God, but men of this world. What does he go on to say? Look at verse 14. By the way, from men by your hand. Who's sovereign over even David's enemies? The Lord is. Don't forget that as you interact with your enemies. O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is this life. David already said in the previous psalm, the Lord is my portion. But what's the portion of the men of this world? It's all that they get in this life. And what have you given them, Lord? Now notice the appeal, not just to the guilt of David's enemies, but also God's mercy. God's mercifully, graciously given them what? Second half of verse 14, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Folks, that's a description of the good life in the ancient world. In many ways, it's a description of the good life today, right? This is the uh, ancient world equivalent of the American dream. If you have money, and you have kids, and you have enough of an inheritance to leave for them, what else is there? David says, you've given those to my enemies. Interesting contrast, if he is on the run, and I've been stripped of everything. Because of their accusations, because of their persecutions, I've been stripped of everything. And yet, Lord, you've you've given them all of those things. And here's the problem. Romans chapter 1. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They've idolized. It's good to have wealth. It's good to have kids. 
It's good to be able to leave an inheritance, but if you're willing to sin to get those things, and that is your life, that is your portion, that's idolatry, that's sin, that's false worship. And that's what David's saying. In contrast, however, what does David say about himself? Look at verse 15. This is just beautiful. As for me, as opposed to them, my enemies, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. How is David able to continue to walk in the path of God even when it's cost him everything? How is he able to not return evil for evil, violence for violence, not resort to sinful speech? Because he knows who his reward is. His reward is the Lord. Part of that reward is David saying, it's worth it to me if I lose everything, but I'm able to stand before you, God, at the great white throne judgment and be able to say I was innocent of that specific accusation. And Lord, I'm going to see you face to face. Now, David's not going to see the Lord face to face because of his own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the coming Messiah that he knew was his. The coming Messiah who had paid the the penalty for David's sin. He wasn't claiming that he would get this because of his own righteousness. But he said, I'm able to walk in righteousness. This is one of the motives that I get you. You're everything to me. To have restored to me the fellowship that I lost in the fall and in my sin. That is what I long for. To see you face to face, O Lord. And then be satisfied with your likeness. I will be transformed and be perfectly righteous and holy as I was created to be. That's my portion. You're my portion. The life to come is my portion. And this just gets richer and richer as we we go from then David's mouth to Jesus' mouth. What do we see when we, we come to Jesus' mouth? We see that Jesus was vindicated, wasn't he? Well, let me start somewhere else, though. Jesus doesn't pray as he's being crucified. Confront them, subdue them, draw your sword and cut them down, does he? What does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why the difference between what David prayed and what Jesus prayed in the face of his enemy's violence and persecution? Again, Jesus came the first time as that sacrificial lamb. He's laying down his life. And you understand, Jesus received vindication. He received vindication already when? He was crucified, died, buried, rose from the dead. What's the resurrection all about? It's the approval of the Father. Even his own disciples, Jesus' own disciples were saying after he was dead and buried for three days, we thought he was the Messiah. But Isaiah 53, we reckoned him accursed by God. Because he was hung on a tree. And yet what happens in the resurrection? The father says, stamp of approval. I approve of that work, son. You've been vindicated in the eyes of all of your enemies. It's a partial vindication, the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a full and final vindication that's coming, isn't it? At the end of all things, when Jesus comes, is he going to come as a lamb? No. How How does John see him in Revelation? A lion. He's going to come, a sword's going to cut him out of his mouth, and he's going to cut down all of his enemies. Justice is coming, ladies and gentlemen, for those who do not repent. You're just storing up wrath. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. If you don't repent, you're just storing up wrath for that day. And oh, how great, who can stand on that day? 
Not you and not me unless we had an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus was vindicated. So what does all this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, how are we supposed to interact with our enemies? We're supposed to interact with them the way Jesus did until he comes back. We pray for them. We don't resort to violence. We don't resort to abusing our, the speech, the gift of speech that God has given us. No, we pray that they would repent, even as Jesus did. And if they don't, we do pray that when he comes back, we know this will happen. He will right every wrong. We will be vindicated. And you know when you're charged of some specific accusation wrongly, you often don't get vindication in this life, do you? How do you, how do you keep from getting bitter? Eaten up with vengeance, hatred towards the person that brought that about in your life. You understand that your vindication is coming with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even with other brothers and sisters in Christ, the score will be settled. The truth will be made known. May that cause us to tremble if we think we can hide anything. And may that give us cause to rejoice, understanding that, that even when everyone else thinks that we're wrong and we know we're in the right before God, we will be vindicated. And more than that, <laughs> what's our great end? We will behold the face of God in righteousness. When we awake after we die, we will be raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is assurance of our resurrection. We'll have a new glorified body. We'll rule and reign with him for all eternity on the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more injustice. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, that's our future. How do we live now in light of that? We return good for evil. We bless those who curse us. And we even lay down our lives for our enemies. Why do we send missionaries to countries where if they find out who they are, they just as soon kill them? Because they're enemies of God and his gospel and his people. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He laid down his life for the elect that we might be saved. And so this is a great, great hope for us. And I hope that this psalm has been as instructive for you as it has been for me this morning. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're thankful for how your character is revealed in this psalm. We pray that we would appeal to your character as we're wrongly accused, as we live in this fallen world with our enemies pray that we would trust you and trust your son, the vindication that is ours in him, the, the grace that we've been shown in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. Pray that we would be willing to lay down our lives for our enemies as well. Keep our hearts from bitterness, Lord. May we pour out our hearts to you in prayer. And may we look forward to that great day when we will experience unbroken sweet fellowship with you and with one another for all eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. And we ask this all in your name and for your sake. Amen.